and welcome back to another installment of The Conspiracy Skeptic. I'm your Conspiracy Skeptic, Carl Mamer, and my guest today is Jerry Drake. Hey, Carl, how's it going? Good, good, yeah. Jerry, uh, boy, Jerry, where to start <laughs> with Jerry? Um, now, I, you, you, I, I've, been, I've been really kind of... Um, kind of a uh, uh, sort of a poaching monster talk sort of yeah. monster talk in terms of monster talk guests and monster talk uh, uh, I guess fans on the, on the board uh, but uh, you, you 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 were uh, you you've been on monster talk at least a couple times as, as a guest I, right I think uh, five times now like Saturday Night Live I think Jeb Card and I are the the, oh, okay. the five time club at this point all right good you get the smoking jacket yeah yeah absolutely Blake owes me a smoking jacket for sure okay yeah yeah and uh right so uh and uh you most recently you were kind of on this massive two-parter if you're a <laughs> fan of Monster Talk you'll you'll recall you'll you'll so don't know what I'm talking about um you and uh, Jeb and um Blake it's one of those. I think. Well, did you just start recording at like eight a.m. or eight p.m. and went to like four in the morning or something? Yeah, or? something like that. I I don't remember how late my wife said it was like two or four or whatever. It was very late. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I know I killed about half a bottle of Jim Beam, but that that episode. I hope it was on the something called the Shaver Mysteries, and yes, I hope yes. people will listen to it because we worked on that like a conference paper. I mean, we had a a Google Docs document going. I mean, I I I Jeb and I, I think research that thing like a like like a paper we were going to present and you know if if i ever get enough time in the world I, I i really wish we could turn it into a book because it 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 follows very nicely the evolution of this conspiracy and then how it led to the the modern um sort of ufo mythology yeah ties it all up really neat and i'm super proud of that thing yeah i mean uh I, this isn't about the shaver mysteries but but kind of what you what you were kind of talking about kind of had me sort of message you and i just dropped the name right. of this canadian guy glenn keely and then you were like you, you can almost see that you were reaching through your keyboard back to me <laughs> like like oh man i really wanted to get into glenn keely but right you know but it was it would it would have been a, a tangent and i'm like well Come on my podcast. We'll talk about Glenn Keeley. We'll get into who Glenn Keeley is in a moment. Sure. But uh, but the but basically, I mean, so the Shaver mysteries, right? That was sort of um, um, you know, what, what, with without going till four in the morning. Uh, sure. <laughs> give me sort of the uh, like the, the the five minute uh, summary. Of what what the Shaver mysteries are and how they've influenced. About, sure. I don't think you can talk about Glenn Keeley. Or I describe Glenn Keeley as the sort of Michelob to the uh, Shaver, uh, Budweiser, and the David Icke uh, Coors. You know, he's oh, like the okay. he's the chic razor of <laughs> of you know conspiracy theorists. But it's sort of that same sort of universe of secret masters uh, controlling the universe, uh, not from outer space, but actually from here on Earth. And um, Richard Sharp Shaver was a guy who was probably quite mentally ill. Uh, probably, you know, we, we we don't want to be unethical and, and give diagnoses of people, but probably schizophrenic, who was uh, who wrote to this magazine that was popular in 1943 called Amazing Stories. That would, it was edited by a guy named Ray Palmer, and he wrote this. Uh, I guess about thirty. 2,500 or 3,000 word essay, maybe a little longer than that, called a, a Letter to Future Man, where he describes the secret language that he in, that he was able to decode called Mantong. And through that secret language uh, and hearing voices through his wall in his apartment and hearing voices through this 
welding machine of all things. He he tells this story about uh, this ancient race of uh, of destructive robots called the Daros, which means detrimental robots, who have this sort of secret plan to uh, rule over the human race uh, in a in a very negative way. And then there's this sort of cosmic war going on between these Daros and then some good robots called the Taros. And Ray Palmer saw in that, you know, the genesis of this really, you know, expansive uh, mythology. And he put the Amazing Stories people on that project and they turned it into this massive novella, novel length uh, thing. And it led to the formation of a community uh, a, a lot like Creepypasta today, where people began to write in and say, oh, well, I've heard these messages, too. And the Daros have these secret elevators to the center of the earth and all this stuff. And over the period of the next decade, um, what Palmer called the Shaver Mysteries ballooned into this really expansive mythology. And out of that, when Palmer left Amazing Stories, he founded a magazine on his old called Fate Magazine. And the very first episode of Fate was the first uh, uh, popular publication to deal with uh, uh, the flying saucer phenomenon. So it's a direct um, evolution from... uh, uh, Richard Sharp Shaver's first letter into Amazing Stories right up to sort of the modern uh, UFO mythology we enjoy. Uh, and then from that, the whole mythology of the Reptoids, the Dulce Bays, a bunch of the Alex Jones, Jones stuff, the David Icke stuff are all sort of uh, children of Shaver. And I cannot not believe that Glenn Keeley, who we're going to talk about now, was not aware of that because he himself has a a theory about ancient secret masters and and uh, hidden languages right, inside right, right. Shakespeare. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, kind of the uh, like the, the you know, I mean, today a lot of people would go, oh, you know, it's the, these you know space aliens are controlling the government. But sort of back then, before the whole space alien mythology really developed, because this was done in like the kind of like the, the, the 30s, the, the shape 40s, 40s the, the, and 50s. The, the 40s yeah. and 50s. You know, that was really kind of right before the UFO, the whole UFO thing kind of really took off. Correct. Right? It was more like un- shadowy, underground creatures, netherworld, you know, which I think kind of then evolved to, you know, today to, you know, space aliens or shape-shifting space lizards, that kind of thing. Correct. And it's straight out of H.G. Wells. I mean, the bad guys in the time machine are these Morlocks that yeah, live under yes, yes. Eloy. So there was already a H. Uh, P. Lovecraft deals with this in a couple of his stories, where these sort of grotesque, uh, monstrous races that are that are in the center of the world, and then about halfway through his career, he turns those beings into, you know, space aliens that uh, are, are are actually our ancient gods. Yeah, and. Um um, the uh, what what so one of the things that really kind of struck me is um, uh, sh- sh- was it Shaver he, he he was in this weird word play right yes yeah. uh, and that's the word Darrow comes from that and probably the most famous person to do that today is uh, uh, who's that guy who the actor that got injured in a motorcycle accident he he right. does stuff like that yeah um, I'll think of his name later but Shaver thought he had uncovered this secret language. Um, based on words as they already exist. So um, the word detrimental robot, uh, he he transcribed as Darrow, right? And he took that from uh, the letters and vowels within, within the words. And he came up with what he thought was this way to read English words as uh, 
as this whole new language, you know, and it's, it's a really weird thing, but it's, it's not uncommon. Like, like I said, we're going to talk about it in a minute, but G- Glenn G- Keel, Gary Busey, Gary, Gary Busey, Busey yeah. that's the guy he's picked that he's, he's picked, he's up picked the, that the, up. The, the, yeah. 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 He does that same thing. In fact, on YouTube, he's got a whole bunch of Buseyisms where he goes through a bunch of them. And it's just this weird way of reinterpreting English words. And of course, a lot of what, it's really astounding that these ancient robots spoke English. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, yeah. it, it, it's things like, like, you know, like the word romantic has the word Roman in it and, you know, Roman in it. Correct. And they, you know, and they were soldiers and, you know, and had Correct. short swords and therefore, you know, Valentine's day is really, and you know, it's red, the God of war. Like it's just, you just, they just start to unpack this stuff. And yeah. when we start talking about Keeley's Desdemona code, it, it's off the chain how how crazy that is, and I've got some examples we, yeah. we can go through. And and so once you start to talk about the, you know these 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 characters that just sort of um you know you know take a word and then just you know find meaning by breaking down the word in ways that are never intended. Like uh, you know there's some good examples where it's like no no like that that is you know that word comes to us from like Greek and or or you know right. or, or French and you're just and you know, that root word in there you're pulling out, you know, you know, romantic, you know, I'm pretty sure, well, you know, the romance language is right. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's no indication that we're talking about Roman soldiers by that word, you know. Right. Like, and the word that we're going to come to with Keeley is, of course, Neanderthal. And Neanderthal. he has quite a fascinating yeah. way to reinterpret that particular word that completely misses the, the boat. Exactly, yeah. So I, I, <laughs> I, yeah. so I messaged you and I'm like, oh, yeah. And you're like, oh, Wow, there's this guy Gun Keeley because he's like this very obscure Canadian sort of footnote in in Canadian yeah. history, and I, I thought no because you you are you're in, you live in Washington D.C. right? Or yes, DC yeah, area, I, yeah. I, I can I can give you a quick summary of how I first heard about this guy because he is super obscure, and unless you happen to follow a sort of better known conspiracy theorist named Alan Watt, not to be confused with the famous philosopher Alan Watts. Right. Uh, who he often seems to pretend to be. Uh, you've probably never heard of Glenn Keeley, but uh, the way I first heard about him is I, I work for a government agency in Washington, D.C., but before doing that, uh, I worked for the Texas General Land Office down in Austin, Texas from, I guess, about 1999, 98, 99 to 2008, and I eventually attained the position of, uh, of a deputy land commissioner of Texas. And while I was there, you know, Texas is a whole other country, which happens to be their motto. Uh, they have a bunch of weird laws about sovereign citizenry and what citizens can do uh, that are not unlike those in Canada. Mm-hmm. And Keeley, about that time, I guess about 10 years before that, had, I mean, you may want to talk about this, had become rather famous in Canada over what was sort of uh, an obscure land scandal and then bribery scandal. Mm-hmm. And he became a sort of folk hero to some of these sovereign citizen types in Texas who thought some because, and get this, that because Texas had adopted the British common law as a republic, that they could use old, outdated uh, articles of the British common law right, yes, yes. <laughs> against state officials in Texas the way Glenn Keeley did yeah. against government yes, officials yes, in Canada. Yes. So we we heard about him a lot in those days, and, and it was sort of, I think he was more famous then when the internet was first getting started, because mm. he was publishing this newsletter uh, uh, called the Keeley Re- the Keeley Paper, right. I guess he was sort of publishing, 
And a lot of that was on the internet back in those days, and he was one of these guys who got talked about a lot. And I had not heard of him again for years. And then whenever I started doing some of this research uh, for another project, it was like, whoa, Mr. Land Scandal guy is, has gone full shaver mystery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Full, full something else, but uh, yeah. Um, but the seed was there, you know, back in yeah. the day. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you read his older stuff, like he doesn't get into all this kind of word play, you know, mother goddess neanderthal thing like like it, it's weird it's like when did he make that jump it's it's very hard to uh to tell but but if i if i can kind of seize the mic a bit and I'll, sure I, go I just, for it yeah i just want to kind of cover like you know glenn keely as far as you know you know canada knows him and then there's a strange break and then you can kind of kind of pick up in glenn keely today but but yeah um we're gonna kind of roll back back to the time of uh, basically the free free trade agreement between uh, uh, a prime minister called Brian Mulroney and um, um, uh, Ronald Ronald Reagan. And uh, now um, Brian Mulroney kind of he was a conservative, so think Republican, but maybe not as crazy. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, he was a uh, conservative politician and became uh, prime minister. He won a he won this huge majority. Um, to win a majority, usually for a conservative, you have to win Quebec, and he won Quebec in this huge landslide, never before seen, never to be seen again. So, so it it it, it was kind of like you had all of these Quebec members of Parliament who are now, you know, have all these prestigious cabinet positions who who knew that you know, four or five years from now, we're probably not going to be in this job anymore. So they tried to line their pockets as much as they could, and right. uh, and and. One of, one of the guys, basically the guy whose job it was to sort of determine like kind of what we call the national capital region, which is Ottawa, and then across the river in Quebec, there's a, there's sort of like a almost like a suburb called called Hull, and um, so his job was to sort of determine you know where government buildings go and who you know where government offices get put, put and stuff like that. Anyways, so Glenn Keeley, Glenn Keeley is a um, he, he he I think. He like a salesman for like uh, I don't even know how to pronounce it exactly Gestentner it was it was an office supply company mm-hmm. way way back and then he eventually bought like a kind of a failing printing company in in, in the Hull area and then he sort of figured out he's like you know these newfangled computers were coming out in the late seventies and eighties and he figured out how to kind of network them and you know and do more with less people using using computers and he kind of turned this. Uh, uh, printing business around and this was quite profitable and then he sort of realized you know if I can do this with a one printing company what if I built an office building and this we're now we're talking like early 80s right uh, if I and and wired it with like you know ethernet and 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 uh, and it'd be the office of the future and so he uh, that was his idea and he called it the mycot center which stands for something like Managers Information Communicating Office of Tomorrow, or something bizarre like that. Whatever, whatever Mycot expands to, it make it, it makes no grammatical sense. <laughs> and and if you were to look at the artist's rendering of this building, you know we're we're both you know kind of Cthulhu fans, and right. this, this this building literally looks like you know 
Cthulhu's uh, ancient city rising out of the ocean. It is a nightmare looking <laughs> building. It is bizarre. So maybe you can kind of see the seeds of his wackiness even early on. But um, so anyway, so he goes to the uh, to the uh, the guy whose name was like something uh, I don't know, Guy Laroche or some something like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. Look- uh, he was the public worship minister. I think it was yes. Roche LaSalle. Oh, sorry, Roche LaSalle, right? Yeah, thank yeah. you. Ro- Roche LaSalle, yeah. And he kind of goes to him and says, you know, hey, I want to build this building in Hull. And back then, you know, Hull was kind of like, it was like it was like the Tijuana of kind of the capital <laughs> region. And, and Hull wanted to be known for more than kind of strippers and, you know, uh, places to go drink when you're 18 and stuff like that. So, 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 you know, they, they, they wanted to have a lot more class A office space. And again, again, Glenn Keeley's kind of always on the cutting edge for a while, like, you know, wiring up offices. And he's like, you know, we're going to put a class A office space in Hull. And he got a bunch of backers and um, the backers were like, yep, we're going to do it. But just one thing, uh, you, you need a government, you need a government, the government in uh, to take out some amount of office space because governments typically don't go out of business. Right. And that's, right. that's, that's guaranteed recurring income. So he goes to, uh, um, you know, yeah, Roche, Roche, Roche LaSalle. And he says, who's responsible for, you know, where government offices go. And Roche LaSalle is like, yep, great. We're going to do it. Uh, of course, you know, there's my customary bribe of $5,000, which doesn't seem like a lot of money. So that's kind of bizarre. And, uh, and then 5% of the contract value, you got to kick back as a donation to the conservative party of Canada. And then Glenn Keeley's like, uh, F you. And, uh, and he's like, well, then sayonara. And, and anyways, long story short, Glenn Keeley's whole business collapsed and, and, uh, he couldn't get the contracts and he eventually was you know, bankrupt and lost his wife and, uh, and, you know, got kicked out of his house. And, and he was, in essence, he was living on the street. And right. while living on the street, he decided that he was going to, because he, he was the Mulroney government that kind of ruined him. And this, this is the part I actually believe, because, I mean, uh, you know, Quebec politicians can be quite, uh, can be quite, uh, um, uh, you know, corrupt. But anyway, so, uh, so he, his idea was he's gonna, every day he was gonna stand on, on, on Parliament Hill and then, uh, call Mulroney a crook. And, uh, every day he would just shout at Mulroney, you're a crook. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, and meanwhile, the, the Canadian media did not like, uh, Mulroney either. So they kind of helped turn this Glenn Keeley guy into kind of a bit of a folk hero. The guy who's like, whether regardless of, you know, rain, snow, whatever, he's every day he's out there protesting Mulroney. And, uh, so eventually Glenn Keeley sort of figures out, well, the idea is kind of planted in his head that, you know, you could, you know, even if the government doesn't want to, um, you know, investigate, you know, this, the, your complaints, you know, for, uh, for bribes, uh, you can go to, uh, they're called justice of the peace, a uh, justice of the peace. And, uh, you could get them to press, uh, you could get a justice of the peace, a JP to press charges, kind of private criminal charges. And, and I don't know if you have that system in the States, but, but the JP is kind of, it's, it's like a little bit of a check and balance. Like, you know, sure. Like, like the idea is like you know the government doesn't want to go after a major corporation that's polluting right because that you know they they you know they lose donations and stuff like that but so you can use the a jp to kind of press charges against the corporation you know for for polluting and stuff like that anyways so keely gets this jp to basically press uh charges against the Mulroney government and just not just not you know roche lasalle like 
everybody in the Mulroney government. And this is Glenn Keeley's style, like, you know, go big or go home kind of thing. So he's going after Mulroney and, you know, all of his ministers and stuff like that. And, um, and of course, you know, this now, it's now in the Washington Post. It's, you know, page one in the Washington right. Post. Like, you know, first time ever, you know, Canada has ever shown up front page of the Washington Post kind of, kind of thing. So, uh, so yeah. So, um, then long, long story short, you know, it kind of wound its way through court and charges start getting kind of tossed out and stuff like that. And eventually, I think, I think it just eventually just whittled down to this Roche LaSalle and then it ended up petering out after that and never really kind of went anywhere. And of course, you know, Glenn Keeley is all kind of like pissed off and, uh, and that, and that about, that's where he, I would like to say that's where he kind of drops off from Canadian history, where he was kind of this weird footnote that sort of, you know, brought, you know, criminal char- private criminal charges against uh, against the Mulroney government, and and so the, um, you know, the um, I call it, you know, the the the, uh, the class of you know middle aged white guy who thinks right. the deck is stacked against him, you know, you know, Keeley was kind of a folk hero to that that kind of guy, and and. Uh, and um, so yeah, so as I was saying, I, I was sort of reaching Keeley, researching Keeley. That's you know that's where he kind of sort of drops off the radar, and then there's this weird gap, and then suddenly it's like you find all these YouTube videos about Glenn Keeley and you know Tim Horton's sandwich and how it relates to this bizarre underground world conspiracy. And, and and that's where you take over. You pick up the story I, from there. I, I can do. I, I want to <laughs> add a couple of. Couple of notes for the American listeners, just okay. as clarification. I I don't know. I mean, I was in elementary school and junior high when Mulroney was, uh, you know, ruling Canada, and he was sort of the first and last prime minister that we knew about because of his close ties with Reagan. Right. Yeah. Until the current, you know, prime minister Justin Trudeau, who is just, you know, uh, in in the blue states in the United States, is sort of this sort of folk hero. Yeah. And uh, you know the collapse of the of the the Mulroney government came right about at the end of the Reagan presidency, mm-hmm. and sort of fell apart as a as a result of similar very similar scandals. Though Reagan, you know, enjoyed a, a reputation beyond his time in office that's only just now starting to dissipate. Um, and Keeley was one of these guys who who had his paper for a while. And it seemed not to transition to the age of the internet. Like I, I was looking at some issues that were online today. It's like he kept that going until the early '90s, and it and it seemed like he, you know, for all of his ability to understand some some key uh, future predictions, he was not able to jump over to the to the world of the web. And that may have had more to that may have heralded his demise as much as anything else. And on, I, on I was going yeah. to say, yeah, it's fascinating when you kind of research them online. I mean, there is, there's going to be like half a dozen websites, dead, you know, URLs, you know, uh, right. domains he has owned that, that he d- never seemed to be able to kind of keep Just going. Do anything like, with. Yeah. Right. Like, it doesn't cost a lot to keep, a, you know, 25 bucks a year or something like that to keep a domain going at least. But um, yeah. 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 Exactly. The, this mean, guy, yeah, guy who was on the cutting edge way back. Did not, yeah, he didn't seem to make the jump very well. Uh, and one thing I wanted to point out is in the U.S. we do have justices of the peace, but they're they're kind of different. My, you know, they're, they're they're they tend to be more famous down south, where everything is sort of run by ensconced political machines. In fact, 
my my grandfather uh, Jesse was a guy who, in our county of uh, about five thousand people, which is actually roughly the size of Dallas County, which has three million people, um, he had been justice of the peace, constable, <laughs> sheriff, and something else. Lord High Executioner. Yeah, and at some point I think he held a couple of those jobs. Uh, oh, County Weyer. Okay. Brands, Weyer and Assessor of Brands. Um, and I think he held some of those jobs at the same time. And in, in the United States, the Justice of the Peace used to have that function. Okay. They they could act as a coroner, or they could they could handle civil lawsuits. Um, they could bring criminal charges between individuals. But today, they're most famously known for um, being the place you go to get a civil ceremony if you want to get married. Right, right. So nowadays, you would go to the JP to get a marriage license. But in the old days, and by the old days, I mean maybe like 50 years ago, they had a lot of judicial power and in fact jps in the wild west could hang people like a lot of the hanging judges that you hear about uh were actually justices of the peace (laughs) so it is a position we have and it used to be tremendously powerful i I should add too in canada at least i mean uh, although it's it's you know justice uh you don't you don't need a law degree, even you. It's no. Yeah, it's technically we call it a patronage kind of. It's like right. you know, you know, it's something you you get for political favors, and it's it's a, it it pays pretty well. Like I mean, I you know, in today's dollars, maybe you know, north of a hundred k a year, and you get the prestige. Of, hey, baby, I'm a judge. Why don't you? Judge. Come you know. Exactly. You know. Exactly. Uh, yeah, my grandpa Drake never went to school. He he yeah. never said a day in school yet. He. Held some fairly prestigious positions out, out in West Texas, so yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, to, and to this day, I don't think you have to. In most counties, I don't think you have to have a law degree to be to be a JP. Yeah. Um, but Glenn Keeley, uh, his big his big heyday is in 1986, and then according to his own account, uh, between 1987 and 1988, he started what he calls calls a journey to understand life so and that's uh that's whenever he sort of begins to fall off the map uh he buys a a a ranch or a farm somewhere out out in canada that seems to be in the in the dead end of nowhere and sort of begins to become a uh a a self-taught guru and this is when he begins to explore his his uh, philosophy of life. So for most of the nineties, he's completely absent from the scene. You know, the, when Alan Watt and some of the people that will later adopt his ideas begin to be capitalized on the internet, uh, you know, guys like Graham Hancock and David Icke begin to use the internet as a tool for, for uh, building their ideas. Keeley is, is nowhere to be seen. And it's, it's in the early two thousands when he starts to show up, and I guess between about 2006 and about 2008, he begins to post a bunch of videos online. And uh, the the famous ones are actually kind of fascinating. They're they're almost like I don't know if you know what ASMR is, but yes, they're almost yes. like accidental ASMR. Like you put him on, and it's he's sitting in his trailer, and it's raining, and he's talking about how he's just fed the animals, and how it's a beautiful day in Canada, and you know he's got this sort of. Uh, you know, uh, a Zen master beard and, and hair going on, looking very different. And for about four hours, without taking a break, he he outlines the centrality of his philosophy. And uh, and then he's he's got a lot of lengthy talking interviews with other people where he where he goes into it. But it's really that set of of uh, of 
almost like classroom sessions where he gives up most of what he believes. And then any, you know, any, anything that anybody else has said about him either has to come from that or has to come from private conversations these people have claimed to have with, uh, with Keeley. And he has a lot of defenders online who, in places like Reddit and some of these more obscure forums, where you know people claim that so and so stole his ideas, or you know uh, he's got the truth, and I met him in a restaurant or whatever. But really, the the primary source for his ideas are this long series of videos that he lays out. Yeah. And uh, at the very beginning, he makes this really weird claim where he says that he and and you know I, the caveat I want to lay out up front is if he has any kind of a mental illness or, or an issue like that, it is not evident from his presentation style. Like he, he looks directly into his camera. He speaks intelligently. He sounds almost like David Attenborough narrating a a documentary. He sounds, so I don't, I don't mind kind of giggling at this guy because I really, I really believe that he is of that class of character like Graham Hancock who, who has isolated himself from the world and from reality and decided that this is the real story. And much like his, uh, you know, real estate scandal and bribery scandal, he just knows better than the rest of us. Right. So he begins his presentation with this discussion of, of his long hair and why he has long hair. And he has decided that the hair on his head has different DNA from the hair in his beard. And he is having that checked out, he says, and it is his belief that the DNA uh, contained in our hair uh, is where um, our soul is housed. Now, immediately, I have a problem with that because I have been bald (laughs) since I was 19 years old. So, you know, I began my life as as a redhead and then I became bald. So that means I have... Absolutely got no soul. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> a soulless redhead to a bald man. I, I'm a, I, I, so I was a little offended at that. But his. Jerry, his Jerry, belief- Jerry, I just say every, every day I wake up, I thank God for the miracle of uh, Propecia. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so his exploration begins rather strangely, and it is through the sort of race memory contained in his hair. I'm not sure if it's the beard hair or the head hair that he has been able to explore uh, these peculiar ideas. And his theories relate to the evolution of of humans on planet Earth. Uh, He begins discussing the evolution of humanity with a shocking revelation, which is, in fact, everything we know is wrong. The the world is not 6,000 years old, as we learned growing up. Uh, in our religious studies classes, it is in fact at least sixty thousand years old. So, oh, well, <laughs> at least so, he'll give us that. I'm f- I'm fixing to blow y'all's mind. The the world is sixty thousand years old, and Glenn Keating is here to tell us what has taken place during that during that time period. And he really discusses this as if sixty thousand years is the equivalent of some massive, you know, a deep time event. When in fact, you know, a lot of his theories revolve around the Neanderthals. That's even sort of the late, the late part of their story. So you know he, he really gets that wrong early on. So this is a, this is definitely a Wikipedia proof uh, theory. 
Um, and he said that he has devised his theories through a sort of intuition that comes from this race memory that he's tapped into. And what it relates to is the split between the various, uh, I mean, he calls them animals, but versions of humanity uh, that he deals with, the Cro-Magnon, the Homo sapien, and what he calls the Neanderthaler. And in, in his mythology, the Neanderthaler is the central character, and we'll get to that a little, a little bit later. But he's basically doing the same thing that David Icke and some of these other guys have done with the, the, the reptilians that live beneath the ground. He's he's subscribing, prescribing to this Neander, Neanderthal, quote-unquote, animal, uh, the, the sort of master race, uh, uh, master class of people uh, like Shaver did with the uh, with the Darrows, and uh, they're still out there. Um, they didn't go away. They they hid their history from us, and they developed all the technology to build the pyramids and all that stuff. And they've been the guiding, the malicious guiding hand of humanity's evolution uh, for the past uh, at least sixty thousand years. And he got to this information through something he calls. Uh, the Desdemona Code. Hmm. And Desdemona here comes from, uh, I believe it is Othello, yes. Othello's girlfriend in uh, uh, in the Shakespeare play. And Shakespeare and Shakespeare's life and his writings are central to Glenn Keeley's uh, mythology. But it's through the Desdemona Code, which in this is the equivalent of, of Mantong or the Buseyisms, is the way that he has been able to understand um all these various words and their hidden meanings uh, in such a way that he can he can tell us this modern story. So this is the Rosetta Stone to his uh, to his uh, mythology, and he said that he came to this conclusion through a a method of reasoning that he calls the cross vine ruse, and he was inspired to adopt this cross vine ruse way of thinking by watching Tarzan movies. Um, <laughs> In the way that Tarzan swings through the jungle from vine to vine, uh, Glenn Keeley has been able to uh, understand the truth of human history uh, by sort of jumping from idea to idea rather than through following a, a strict uh, path of reasoning like a, like a normal human right. being would be. And as I said, his, his firm belief and his great revelation, along with this Desdemona Code and, and the Crosswine Ruse, and the thing about the hair is that the, and he calls them again, Neanderthalers, are actually the the secret ancient masters of mythology that control humanity. And we'll get to in a in a minute, kind of the dark place that he's going with that. His argument is that the first human or first whatever he calls them human mm-hmm. was actually the equivalent of Lilith in the Bible. Right. And she lived for about 84,000, 85,000 years. I don't know how that fits into the 60,000 years. And that she was a hermaphrodite who continually produced offspring and it's, that were just clones of herself. And at some point, she needed to get out of the business of cloning herself and actually produce uh, men and women so that, so, that we could, uh, so that we could do work on her behalf and build a civilization, uh, yada, yada, yada. So Lilith actually puts herself in a position to create uh, the first man and the first woman who, through a process of what he calls creation, but we can interpret as evolution, uh, through the process by which Homo sapiens um, 
these Cro-Magnons. He gets this badly wrong. Cro-Magnon came before Homo sapien, but right. never mind. And these Neanderthalers appear on planet Earth at this crucial uh, 60,000 year uh, point. Uh, and DNA is the method by which we not only transmit our, our, our ability to biologically replicate ourselves, it's also the means by which all these ideas are handed down from generation to generation. And if you have, if you're in possession of this Desdemona code, you can understand through this uh, period, this, this process of, of internal self-reflection, um, what actually happened. And it's, that's the means by which uh, uh, Glenn Keeley has come up with this with this theory. It's coded into his uh, into his DNA, and he's used uh, the crosswind method in order to read that. Right. Yeah. And the big conclusion is that at some point these these Neanderthalers reached a uh, a sufficient period of uh, a point of uh, evolution where they were able to develop fire, weaponry, and clothing. And he sees these as the uh, the three key uh, uh, components of what makes up human civilization. And once they were able to develop those pieces of technology, uh, they were able to uh, essentially harness the environment and develop the high civilizations that I presume would be Lemuria and Atlantis and all that. He never uses those words uh, specifically, but sort of by the time he gets to the end of his story, uh, he's kind of leading us in that in that direction. And you might ask yourself, who are these Neanderthalers? If, if they're here and our secret masters, uh, where did we, uh, where did they go? Who are they? Well, we find that by using the Desdemona code to decode what their name means. <laughs> and their name, I mean, to you and me, the Neanderthals got their name because the first significant skeleton was discovered in the Neander Valley in Germany. Right, yes. And it has yes. nothing to do with <laughs> their point of origin, which was, you know, not even Germany. And, and their last stand, I guess, was in what is now Israel and in Spain, which is where their civilization or their, uh, not civilization, is where their species actually either went extinct or became fully uh, inbred with, with modern uh, Homo sapiens. But according to the Desdemona Code, Neanderthaler is translated as Dean. He says that Neander is the ancient German word for uh, Dean. I, I speak German. I, I don't believe that's true. Right. And that Thaler is the ancient German word for dollars. Um, that's not true either because dollar itself is a German word, and it was a it was a, actually a, a medium of currency in some of the German Empire back during the Middle Ages. So who who do we know? That's the dean of dollars. I won't even say the the word out loud, but you know. I'll say it. The Jews. <laughs> if, as one of my friends says, no no Jews, no news, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's that's sort of Glenn Keeley's master race, and I I don't think he ever drops the word, but it is heavily implied in his video. Maybe he says it once or twice, but it's heavily implied in his videos that you know. That's where the Neanderthals ended up. Is that they're the they're the, the chosen people in the modern Jewish uh, faith, and that the religion, the monotheistic religion that they brought forth, is actually a uh, a subversion of this true process of creation um, that was put forth by this creature that we call Lilith. Right, yeah. uh, and as a part of that, he 
he presents the idea that Freemasonry is actually the world's oldest religion. Um, I, I have to, you know, full confession, I am actually a Freemason. Um, and we would like you to believe that. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, Freemasons love to big up their role. And if, yeah. According to Masonic lore, you know, we started the U.S. and we did all this and we're connected to, you know, King Solomon and, you know, the ancient temple and all that stuff. But it's actually a fairly modern, yeah. you know, modern meaning 1700s uh, fraternal organization, in which we uh, do a lot more spaghetti supper eating than, yeah. uh, than occult ritual. But he sees it's just the classic way of explaining all the, uh, the big C conspiracy theories with this sort of novel twist, which I think is actually incredibly creative. Like it would make the, it would make the greatest uh, basis uh, for, a, for a science fiction novel. It, the idea that the Neanderthals are still around and, uh, and still out there doing their business. And this really crosswalks nicely with David Icke's uh, big theory, which is that the reptilians or the reptoids mm -hmm. um, are actually the descendants of the dinosaurs. They're not uh, they're not an, uh, a space race that came to Earth, but they're actually uh, dinosaurs who, due to climate change, had to go underground and uh, hide out, and then they later found their uh, you know their planet corrupted by these uh, evolved apes. Uh, that is um, the plot of a John Pertwee series of Doctor Who episodes uh, that deal with the Silurians oh, yes, in the yes, yeah. 1960s. And so there's no way that Glenn or that uh, uh, David Icke did not rip off the reptoid concept from from those old episodes of Doctor Who, which are actually quite good. But yeah, I would have thought he got it from V. That's where I, I assumed he got it I from. Know, but I mean, at that time, V, those those are space aliens, though. Like yeah, the yeah. Solutions of Doctor Who actually are, you know, the ancient uh, mm -hmm. masters of the of the dinosaur planet, you know, and then it was, who was it, that spaceship that Adric had that blows up uh, when uh, uh, he tries to save the Earth that killed the dinosaurs and they have to go to, so it's a very... A neat mythology, and I, I just can't believe that David Icke, being a man of that age, it was not influenced by those by those Pertwee episodes of Who. Uh, but, yeah. but but Glenn Keeley solves the same problems as David Icke, which is who the secret masses are and who controls the world. Uh, but instead of evolved dinosaurs, it's uh, it's these Neanderthals. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I mean, com coming back to Shaver, that was kind of like the the Shaver thing, right? I mean, before it was sort of like you know UFO greys are pulling our strings, like like it was the, the idea of this the secret masters, right? Right. And that that comes out of uh, Helena Blavatsky's uh, mythology. Uh, uh, that that was huge in the 1800s when people were starting to go to 1800s as if that was a 10 year period. In the late 19th century, when people began to explore Tibet. And they began to translate some of this Tibetan lore. They badly misunderstood uh, uh, what uh, some of this stuff actually said. In fact, uh, another monster talker uh, who actually teaches at uh, my graduate university down in Texas, Joe Laycock, uh, did a great piece on how the concept of the tulpa uh, emerged purely from a mistranslation of some Tibetan documents in the, in the uh, late 1800s. So we have this whole concept in our Western mythology of this tulpa thing, this mind monster that you're able to create, um, you know, through psychic force. 
and it's supposedly rooted in this ancient Tibetan tradition, but it's complete BS. In fact, uh, it's just the result of a mistranslation, and this is not a, a, a ancient tradition that, the, that, that the, they have. And a lot of that came from this, this 19th century notion that there was this ruling class of, of – maybe they weren't ruling class, but these people in places like Shambhala or Shangri-La – or Atlantis, or wherever, that uh, possessed a superior intelligence and were still kind of out there uh, ready to both guide and uh, and uh, and uh, uh, enlighten the human race. And if you were, if you saw this as benevolent leadership, if you were a good British citizen who liked kings and monarchs and uh, a top-down hierarchy, this was very appealing and very comforting to know that the uh, Shangri-La's masters were out there like King Arthur waiting to save the world. But if you're a guy like Glenn Ely or, or Glenn Keeley or, or David Icke or, or Graham Hancock, you don't trust big authoritarian institutions. So of course these are menacing, you know, hidden, you know, uh, mind controlling detrimental robots and, and reptoids and, and Neanderthal monsters that are, that are there to limit uh, humanity's uh, evolution. And I mean, we can go way out back. I mean, the whole Gnostic faith of uh, Latter Judaism and early Christianity had the same kind of stuff buried in its mythology that you know the universe was created by this monstrous demiurge masquerading as God, and uh, it's our job to become an enlightened and sort of you know jump over that guy and and, and reach true enlightenment. And in that way, uh, uh, Keeley is actually uh, very much channeling sort of this this ancient sort of belief system that uh you know everything that we know and believe is a is a is a, a monstrous uh a perversion of the of the real truth and through his you know abilities to to read this uh this desdemona code he's able to uh, understand that now that's really pretty and elegant when we say it like that but then it goes from the sublime to the ridiculous because <laughs> one Glenn of the <laughs> Yeah, one of the things that he's figured out, and this is one of again one of his pillar revelations, is that these Neanderthalers have uh, agents uh, in the government and in global masonry and in all these places. And I mean, your your skeptical readers are like, your listeners are probably like, oh my god, that Jerry guy, he's one of these agents. He works for the government. He's a, a Freemason and, uh, and a skeptic, but no. I can tell you why I'm not one of these agents, and it's because I don't watch uh, football, and that <laughs> makes sense right now. Because through the Desdemona Code, Keeley has discovered. Brace yourself, people. You ready? Round zero for this conspiracy is Pasadena. Yes. And the way the Neanderthalers communicate their ideas to their agents. Their men in black is through the symbolism contained within the Rose Parade. And he says he could do an entire lecture series on how to interpret uh, the instructions to the uh, <laughs> the agents of the Neanderthaler uh, through the colors and pageantry of the of the Rose Parade. Um, I mean, I don't know. Uh, 
maybe 20 years ago the Rose Parade was something, but I mean, uh, the Super Bowl, I think it's time to up, up, up their game because I don't yeah. know that people watch parades. Yeah, I, mean, uh, I, remember, I remember there was a big thing in the 70s, like, but there wasn't a lot on TV in the 70s. So, like, wow, the Rose Parade. Like, even in Canada, we wa- would watch it because like, it's like, ooh, that, I, that's what I spent money on a color TV for, to see that. You know? <laughs> I mean, in Texas, we watched the Cotton Bowl. <laughs> but I think I've seen the Rose Parade once. I, I, I had to march in the Cotton Bowl Parade when I was in band or whatever they call it. you know, And I just remember wearing a wool band uniform and it being like 180 oh, degrees oh, this this whole idea of the uh, like you know glenn keely you know the the um lilith like i mean that, that that whole idea of like you know that there's this mother goddess ancient religion that you know kind of you know old terrible hulking men kind of you know suppressed and overwrote their own kind of thing on to you know that, that that's um i mean that's not an ancient idea but that that's that's sort of an idea that, that that's um who kind of originated that idea or at least popularized I mean, it wow i mean that's that is uh that really is a good question and that uh, i don't think you can say there's one person who did that um one thing we will say is that the early early what <clears throat> Whenever I used to teach at Concordia University, which was a religious college, I, I always made clear to differentiate between um, Christianity and the Jesus movement. So when you're talking about Christianity, you're talking about the thing that you go down and sit in Sunday school class and learn about today. When you're talking about the Jesus movement in the historical context, you're talking about the stuff that actually happened that we have documentary uh, uh, evidence for. And amongst that documentary evidence is very little evidence uh, of the historic Jesus, maybe a couple of, of, uh, of apologetics, that, but no firsthand evidence from his lifetime, you know, hand wave, hand wave. But one thing we do know <clears throat> that was a key part of the second, third, and maybe the first century Jesus movement was uh, a cult surrounding uh, the female characters in what eventually became the post uh, Nicene Bible, and Mary Magdalene is a key character in that. There's a gospel, quite a famous gospel of Mary Magdalene, uh, and there is a whole mythology that has evolved around her. Uh, again, if you want to look at another major conspiracy, the Holy Blood, Holy Grail guys um, built their whole universe around, uh, and Dan Brown as well, around the idea that Mary Magdalene was a venerated, uh, uh, a venerated, a more venerated character, and you know, quite probably uh, she is a character that's based on some regional gods, goddesses that existed in the Roman pantheon or in Ahura Mazdaism, which seems to be one of the leading influences of, uh, of the early Jesus movement. So it goes way back. You know, there is a concerted effort amongst sort of the post-Nicene uh, evangelicals that go out uh, as part of the Roman Empire and convert uh, pagan Europe and even pieces of, of Asia toward Christianity to overwrite uh, local uh, deities, uh, especially female deities, with these sort of hyper-masculine uh, characters. And if you ever want to witness that, you can get one of the most clear places to see it is in uh, Bath, England, where you know you had a, a, a pagan fountain uh, dedicated to a local uh, a female deity that is then overwritten by a Roman female deity that has then completely taken over 
uh, by the hypermasculine uh, in the mi- Middle Ages, whenever it's reconsecrated uh, as a as a royal bath. So that is an ancient concept, but it begins to become uh, re-explored and reinvigorated in the late 19th century uh, by scholars uh, who are ancillary. Uh, to the big religious colleges in uh, in the UK, you had uh, uh, Margaret Murray is probably the most famous person to try to do this. Uh, she wrote a book that's referenced constantly in Lovecraft's writing called the Witch Cult. I believe it's called the Witch Cult in Europe, and that people like uh, 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 I mean, it's a it's such a good book. I mean, it reads. I, 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 I remember whenever I read it in junior high school, high school, I just swallowed it whole because the idea of this surviving, you know, folk cult leading right down to the present day that has these ancient ties to pre-Christian Europe is just so delicious and delightful. And it, and it, and it, 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 it it's every horror uh, of fans' fantasy uh, to believe that, you know, modern paganism is a, has a direct lineage to ancient paganism. It's just not true. I mean, right, right. you know, we, there were no written sources in any folk traditions that continued on, uh, uh, continued on as the result of, of what we might call folk magic or practical magic. And it's certainly more evident in, in Germanic culture. I mean, what the Pennsylvania Dutch do as part of their folk tradition, uh, uh, powwow magic, actually is ancient. But it's all done within the context of of, of quite modern uh, Christianity, Reform Reform Dutch and uh, and uh, uh, Mennonite and Amish Christianity. So, yeah, those folk traditions live on, but they're not they're not to the extent that Margaret Murray uh, wanted us to believe. And, but I think she's really the first person in the modern era to go, okay, there was a full on conspiracy to wipe out this story. Of the importance of women in uh, in early uh, European society, and of the importance of Lilith and uh, uh, female uh, deities in uh, in Western Christianity. And if you want to read good scholarly books about that today, uh, the author that you want to read is Margaret Barker, who has deconstructed the uh, the pagan roots of of Judeo Christian religion in a very uh, precise way that uh, that uh, uh, Margaret Murray did not. So there is some scholarship out there on that kind of stuff that you can look at. Do I believe that Glenn Keeley uh, or read that stuff? No, <laughs> but I know that uh, that Graham Hancock has read that stuff. So it's possible that people that influenced uh, Glenn Keeley. Uh, uh, got to him through second and third hand uh, uh, scholarship in in this community. I cannot believe that Glenn Keeley uh, gave birth to this stuff entirely on his own. No, no, yeah. I mean, even the uh, was it the nineties? There was that, that mists of Avalon. Or no, sorry, eighties. Yep. It was eighties, right? Eighties. Yeah, uh, Brad Martin. Sorry, Marion Zimmer. Brad. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that was one thing that kind of maybe holy blood, holy grail. But you know, for the people who just kind of were into sort of sci-fi fantasy, you might not have sort of been into that kind of fringe stuff. That I think that that idea might have also sort of spread in in that way. A holy blood, holy grail for me when I discovered that book, it was it was the most groundbreaking bullshit I had ever <laughs> sunk my teeth in. It was like eating frosting for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> For, for three months, like, because it is, I mean, I'm not that skeptic that's going to make fun of this stuff because it is so well written and it's so much better than the Da Vinci Code. 
it's written like a detective story and within its own universe um it makes absolute perfect sense you know it is ab it is you know historians that's what my master's degree is in historians have this uh way of of checking the credibility of of research called internal and external critique and the first phase of sort of evaluating the text is to see if it holds up to internal critique are all the arguments within this book internally consistent and holy blood holy grail is completely internally consistent if you never pick up another source it's 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 absolutely perfect what really that book though helped me develop a professional career as a historian by beginning the process of actually looking into that stuff externally and whenever you actually start to check some of the facts and the mythology and some of the meanings there are some mysteries there the question of at Arcadia Ego and what all that stuff means and some of what Da Vinci was up to blah 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 that are interesting and compelling but the way they link them together the dates that they propose and then the factuality of the Grand Priory of Sion just doesn't exist in the documents and I think if you if you're a person who stops with the book itself and then and then uses it as a source you're, you're going to build a lot of mistaken uh, beliefs around that even like I, I know, like usually around Easter, there's always these sort of memes that get passed around about how you know Easter is basically a, a retelling of like some ISIS or something story. Sure. And and yeah, I'm like, I'm like, I mean, I would just sort of read that and go. I mean, you know, I'm aware that like the, you know a lot of religion, you know, a lot of Christianity is sort of has some parallels and other things. And I would just kind of look at that and go, yeah, okay, whatever. And then I just started kind of researching it. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And and you know, and it's like. Obviously, if there were all these deep parallels between, you know, the ISIS story and Easter, there'd be a lot of scholarly sort of writing about it. And there's there's nothing. This, I don't know where it really no, came yes. from, you know. But it's just something like, you know, kind of like, you know, atheists, you know, we like to, you know, it's one of those things where we pass around, but we don't really Yeah, check. it's it is totally a meme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and some of these memes have been around forever. Yeah. I think that the closest parallel historically to... The Jesus that, that we know today is probably Mithras, who is a character in Ahura Mazdaism, uh, who has a similar uh, birthright, uh, birth time. He had some apostles and some of that stuff. But there are good parallels to Jesus in all kinds of – like the first century was a time of messianic belief. So you, you had cults around, uh, you know, what is uh, – What's his? John what's he Baptist. call it? The John the Baptist yeah. had a cult. Uh, 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 Paul of Tarsus had a cult. Um, Mithras had a, a very complex secret mystery cult. The temples they just moved uh, the Mithras temple in London from its uh, uh, the site it had been on since its discovery back to its original place. You know, so you, you I mean that was about as far removed from uh, the Silk Road as you could get to have a. I mean, there's one up on the Scottish border. So you had what was essentially these worldwide uh, messianic religions, but Jesus is probably the the sort of the, uh, the the first century manifestation of Joshua from the Old Testament. There was this whole series of fictional novels written in the first century in uh, Latin and Greek, where Joshua, who's you know an, uh, a Levantine character, shows up like Superman and, and <laughs> helps people out. 
And these things are, are works of fiction, a lot like the Shaver mysteries. So it's, 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 a, it's, it's tempting to say that, you know, a, 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 an oppressed people living under a global empire uh, created uh, uh, mythologies around savior, <laughs> savior deities who just so happen to show up and help out right. <laughs> oppressed people, right? Yeah, yeah. So it really feels like that that's probably, uh, you know, in the same way that we go down and watch, you know, Iron Man, uh, uh, you know, stomp the Middle Eastern terrorists. Right. These guys were, were watching, you know, were reading books about Joshua stomping on Roman uh, Roman senators. So like, that's. I was going to say, it's like, the, like the, even like Prester John, right? I mean, it was mm-hmm. a you know, time in Europe where, you know, Europe is kind of being invaded by, I, I forget, like the Mongols or the Turks or something, or the Muslims or something like that. And, and you know, and it was looking pretty grim. And so suddenly these, you know, these ideas that this Prester John was, you know, this, uh, this you know, Christian king in the East with vast armies and riches was, you know, he's going to, don't worry, he's going to. He's going to come up from behind. He's going to roll up. Yeah, yeah. he's going to save us kind of thing. And, and a, you know, a messianic kind of savior type character. Yeah, I mean, troubled people, you know, you know, they find their Rambo, right? You know? Right, right. And, and I think, you know, one of the, one of the issues is that you, you have to begin to ask yourself, what do these mythologies look like with the passage of time? You know, the, the, from the time, you know, the, the supposed historic Jesus lived until, you know, the Nicene Council, when the Bible is, we know it as, as the one that you open your hotel drawer and, and dig out, uh, emerged, uh, is about 300 years. It's more time than, uh, the United States has been a country. So this would be like, without the benefit of the internet, you know, going around and collecting primary documents about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson that existed in their lifetimes and sitting down in a room and deciding which ones told uh, an authentic story versus you know which one which ones didn't tell the story so you it is it is a very challenging thing that they did i think we like to believe that you know these artifacts of history that we have that serve as the basis for our great religions are quite ancient, and in fact, they're actually not. And in a lot of times, they were written, you know, many, you know, many hundreds of years, if not even in the case of, you know, some of the Jewish writings, perhaps even a thousand years after the events were supposed to take place. Um, and and we've got two world religions that have formed since the uh, emergence of the United States: Mormonism and uh, Scientology. And is all we have to do. And these have millions of followers. Hmm. Fast forward uh, 500 years in the future and see what they look like. I mean, you know, Mormonism has, what, 16 million followers. Uh, It's a holy American religion. And we know that the life of Joseph Smith and the story that he told was absolute, complete baloney. You know, but people believe it anyway. And that was only uh, 170-something years ago. So that's it's not hard for me to believe that somebody like Shaver could write this letter to a, a science fiction magazine, and then fast forward 80 years later, it's it's evolved into what people like uh, Glenn Keeley uh, are, are are professing uh, to be the to be the absolute truth. And then, of course, you know, I don't think Shaver knew anything about Blavatsky or Theosophy or any of that stuff, but I damn sure know that Ray Palmer did. 
and uh, and and I mean, you see a straight line uh, right down to uh, to to Ike and uh, to the lesser extent Graham Hancock and then and then Glenn Keeley. The um, I think on the Monster Talk podcast, you you made this sort of great point about the this concept of the. Um, was it the the influencing machine? The influencing machine. Yeah, yeah, and, and how like you know, you, I think you you, you, you kind of wonder like, well, how much of religion is based on people being you know suffering from the influencing machine? And, I, and I'll, I'll lead two part question. Well, one, sure. What is the influencing machine? And, and two, is is Glenn Keeley a victim of the influencing machine in your in your professional opinion? But go, go ahead. I think I think you know again not to diagnose this psychology, but I, I don't think Glenn Keeley is schizophrenic. That being said, I do think that he is influenced by the the influencing machine. I do think a lot of people uh, who profess a religious conviction are, and we can find historical characters like that that we know very very well. Um, it's what, first what, off, what, what is the influencing yeah the influencing machine uh, is is a is a concept. A tertiary to psychology, but quite important to in, uh, information theory, uh, that was uh, uh, proposed in a paper, I guess about 75, 80 years ago, in which people, either through a function of mental illness or through some other uh, confusing factors in their psychology, misinterpret their internal uh, monologue, the voice that we all hear in our head that's us talking to ourselves, as being external. So basically, you know, uh, uh, I mean, I'll give a great example. My grandmother did this. She would sit down and pray and say, I asked the Lord for guidance about investing in this, you know, piece of real estate. And the Lord said, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it was like, it's like, you know, it's not the Lord. <laughs> I mean, this is you. Like, we all do that. Like, the voice in our head is our internal monologue. But for whatever reason, um, you know, Joan of Arc is a great example, or you know, Ted Bundy, uh, the who's the killer up in New York who thought his neighbor's son, dog son, was son, a, son, yeah, son, son of Berkowitz. Sam, Berkowitz? yeah, David Berkowitz. They heard these internal voices and confused them for external voices, and that is absolutely what what Richard Shaver did. Is he, whether it was through you know a rewiring of his brain or through schizophrenia, he heard these uh, voices coming from his welding machine or through his walls. And interpreted those things as external to his own mind. And that's the influencing machine. That's the machine part. This belief that something external to, to what you're hearing in your head is talking to you. And I absolutely think that's Glenn Keeley's issue. Like the whole concept of the Desdemona Code, where he is able to interpret um, this weird language through some, through some intuition, the cross-vine ruse, uh, is basically him... You know, sitting in that rainy trailer, you know, thinking this stuff out and coming up with uh, uh, with these answers. And you know, this is an old concept in Buddhism, uh, which I studied quite seriously for a long time. We have the concept of the koan, which is this sort of phrase or passage or riddle that you meditate on and roll over in your mind in order to uh, kind of hone your your, your thinking capabilities and to bring you more towards an enlightened understanding, you know, these kind of thought experiments and things like that are quite old, but for some reason, 
this class of mystics, I know a guy on Facebook who claims to be a mystic and this is what he's doing. You know, this class of mystics climb up on us on a pillar, go up on a mountain and uh, and listen to this thought in their head. And they're they're misinterpreting as that that as something uh, that uh, that came external to them. And I have always wondered if it wasn't that. Uh, that caused uh, a lot of these folks to, uh, to 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 think that some deity was talking to them, and I think there's some interesting uh, uh, evidence of that. One of the, uh, uh, I believe it's one of the Dead Sea. It's either a Dead Sea Scroll or it's a Nag Hammadi library document. Is a Brontologion, and uh, Bronto uh, means uh, like Brontosaurus. It means thunder. Logion means uh, source of information. So Brontologion is information that comes from the thunder. And these are interpretations of the word of God as transcribed by people who are listening to him speak in, uh, in uh, uh, thunderstorms. Well, what we know uh, from uh, old, uh, you know, old uh, Jewish writings is that there were adherents of Yahweh, who Margaret Barker believes was a storm god and has evidence for that, uh, that he actually talked to his fellows through uh, storms, through thunder. And when uh, you know Moses goes up on the mountain, it's not during good weather. It's during a massive thunderstorm. Yahweh is seen by the people, by the chosen people, up on the mountain, and he manifests himself, himself as a massive thunder and lightning storm. So uh, I believe Cotton Mather wrote a Brachologion as well, in which he interpreted the word of God. through. I believe it was either Cotton or Reason or, in, or Increase, uh, that wrote a Brontologion in which he uh, interpreted the thoughts of God through uh, this thunderstorm that he heard. So there's a lot of little tertiary pieces of evidence, Joan of Arc, uh, some of our modern saints, uh, who flat out told us that um, the word of God that they were hearing in their head was coming from, uh, or the word of God that they were hearing was just a, that specific voice in their head. I don't know about you, but the voice in my head speaks in <laughs> different voices. I mean, there's like the Jerry that tells me to, you know, get off the train and go to work. And then there's like the six beers, Jerry. <laughs> and the six beers, Jerry, is not that other Jerry. You know, and I, that's perfectly normal. But because, you know, of the way my brain is wired up, I most of the time know the difference between the two, right? <laughs> well, my, my internal voice is usually just screaming. It's like, the, mm-hmm. like, it's like the work, Carl, is like... You know, everyone's. You know, I'm just like the nicest person at the company, but then they don't hear my internal dialogue where I'm just like, Jesus fucking, you know, just right, like, right. That that yeah, that Jerry wants to throw yeah. you know hammers at cop cars. Yeah, you exactly. know, right. Yeah. But I mean, we, for whatever reason, like you and I, and most of us know the difference, but some people exactly. don't know the difference. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, there's a whole idea of. Uh, I, I think um, uh, the, the HBO's Westworld. I think they kind of dipped into that it covered the, the, the bi caramel mind where it was like you know right. that, it, 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 this idea that you know way 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 back that people i don't i think it's probably it's probably a bit pseudoscience but the idea that way way back people didn't understand that you know their internal voices were their voice they people kind of viewed their internal voices as you know being kind of put there by by a god they don't you know, people thought like right, the mind was you know that our brains were just kind of a you know a non-functional lump of you know 
fat and it was like kind of like the heart was the center of our sure the egyptians yeah, through the brain yeah exactly which which is confusing because it's like you know hmm i kind of notice when a spear goes through a person's brain they really change you know like the- it's it's always confused me you know i remember studying you know quite clearly the car- the concept of cartesian duality which you know is i i mean i work in information science so this is the kind of stuff i like to sit around and think about you know, it's pretty obvious because of where our eyes are yeah. that our center of cognitive uh, capability is in our head, right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. So I never really understood why the ancients saw the heart as the place in which that stuff happened. But, you know, the ancients didn't have a word for purple. They, The Greeks referred to um, – or blue, excuse blue, me. Right, right, right. They referred to it as wine dark. Right. So, you know. It, it, it's really curious as to how those kind of cognitive uh, basis is rolled up. You know, there's in computer science, there's this concept called a Turing test, yep. which is the mean, means by which we are supposedly supposed to be able to identify the emergence of artificial intelligence, and that a, a truly artificial intelligence, whenever it was talking, you know, communicating with uh, a, a human being, we would not be able to tell the difference between talking to a human and talking to an artificial intelligence. I think that's absolutely wrong. I, I, I will plant my foot, you know, how dare you <laughs> claim to be smarter than Alan Turing. That's the hill but, you're ready to die on. What's that? That's yeah, the hill you're willing to die on. I think uh, artificial intelligence would have an internal monologue. Like, right. and that's the one thing it doesn't have, you know, even, you know, and I, I, I design these systems at work, you know, even the most sophisticated artificial intelligence, these AIs that we use to, you know, understand data and statistics and patterns are the result of algorithms that human beings have placed inside the system and taught to learn a, a true artificial intelligence would, would do what we do. And it would look at that and go, you know, Nabra, you know, it's five o'clock and I, I don't really feel like doing that. <laughs> you know, there's a, that's, that's really part of the, the issue is that, you know, uh, intelligence also has agency and in, and in Turing's, you know, test, that intelligence is still just a mask for, uh, you know, for very complicated algorithms. There's a great book that argues that the human mind is a kludge. In fact, I think it's called kludge. Yes, right, yes. And that all the stuff that we, that the, the reason why our brain works the way it does is almost by accident. It's like an evolutionary accident that figured out, you know, that in order to make the hand work the way it works, the brain has to work the way it works. And that's why the ape brain doesn't work quite like the human brain. I mean, that's a long way from Glenn Keeley, but this is the exact kind of stuff that he himself is, is exploring with the creation of his, uh, his mythology. The, uh, um, you know, you're sort of talking about Lumeria. I think I think you talked about this. I don't know if it was a monster talk, but um, uh, it, it, you raise an interesting point about how. Uh, I mean, I've always known Lumeria to be just this, you know, like like Atlantis. This uh, yeah, Atlantis of the Pacific. Yeah, but but it, it kind of had, like it. There, it was originally kind of a, a scientific idea, right? Because like they, yeah, you know, they they look at Madagascar and they go, okay, that does not look like the wildlife of Africa. It looks a lot more like India. And so they just imagined before plate tectonics, right? They just thought like, there must have been a continent, you know, but, you know, connecting Madagascar with, you know, South Asia. And that must have just then sunk under the ocean or something. And but once we understood plate tectonics, we we abandoned that. But but, you know, it's like these these ideas then don't get 
abandoned by the you know sort of by the pseudoscientists people or the you know they just they, they, they keep on going. One of the things I will not take credit with for this. This is a Jeb Card idea, a hundred percent. And, and if, if you ever want to explore some of this stuff, I I I, I, I doff my mortarboard to Jeb on this stuff. He, he was but he, he was another guest I poached from. Uh, from <laughs> he argues that pseudoscientists love Victorian science. Yes, yes. They they are obsessed with it. They want to have a study. And, and brass machines and smoking jackets and, you know, uh, pith helmets yeah, 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 yeah. and bow ties and all that stuff. And they love the, the, the professor challenger version of science where a person can get a degree in, you know, sonothology and then be a chemist and a physicist and all this stuff like, like you know, uh, like Edison or Tesla. And so they're sort of obsessed with that that version of science. So they tend to gravitate towards ideas uh, that were very attractively and elegantly presented in an era before uh, Karl Popper and uh, and peer review. And I mean, you know, this is you know, people say that this is Frank Sinatra's world and we just live in it. In fact, it's Karl Popper's world and we just live in it. The modern scientific uh, uh, method is is Popper's version of science, in which Ideas not only have to be verified through experiment, but they have to be replicated. And persistent replication is the way that we know something is approaching true. And no real scientist would ever say, this is true. This is real. This is fact. In fact, you know, we now know through uh, information theory and quantum information theory and things like that, that there's a hell of a lot of stuff that's that seemed impossible 30 years ago that's not only possible but but actually has to happen in order to make sense. So what now we really talk about is degrees of certainty. You know, we have a high degree of certainty that the sun is going to come up tomorrow. Uh, but when we're looking at, you know, a particle moving through a quantum system, uh, we have very low degrees of certainty <laughs> as to where that particle is if we know its, uh, its, uh, its uh, speed uh, and its trajectory. So, you know... That's the way we kind of talk about reality now. In the world of Victorian science, Lemuria actually makes more sense than plate tectonics. I mean, plate tectonics is is a wacky theory that, yeah. (laughs) I mean, the Earth is this molten thing, yeah, yeah, and they're floating around, and we're not all burning up from the heat (laughs) of this. It's a tough theory to get your head around, whereas the idea that there used to just be an island there is, is actually actually makes a lot of common sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the um, yeah, coming back to sort of the uh, like the, the, the Mormons, the um, I, I I would say that uh, it reminds me that Glenn Glenn Keeley, uh, Glenn, at one point Glenn Keeley kind of he took up with this uh, author in Canada called Robert O'Driscoll. Robert, yeah, yeah. He he's you know he's a guy that I think was cert- certifiable. He was a uh, he's basically a, a UAT professor. And um, when I say UAT, you know, if you were to map the Canadian university system onto the American Ivy League, that's like maybe saying Yale, uh, University of Toronto. So like like Yale. And um, uh, so uh, so he was a you know a Yale Canadian, you know, the Canada's Yale, a professor at Canada's Yale, and uh, and he, he was quite a good, respectable professor of basically Irish literature, and uh, and then he just kind of went bonkers and started <laughs> right self-publishing these books that were like 
half poetry and half like you know like um you know anti-semitic just just toe curling stuff and he would get other authors to write stuff and glenn keely published some stuff in one of his books and right you know and he's like you know and glenn keely he at one point i think he was sort of fell under the you know very sort of anti-semitic kind of stuff where you know glenn even glenn keely's like you know and of course the people are the jews and, you know, and their religion is money and you know he i think later on he tried to kind of defend himself i'm not saying all jews i'm just saying the jews that really love the money those are the ones you know and it's like you know, uh, yeah okay glenn but uh yeah um but but yeah and uh, but but Robert O'Driscoll one of his whole ideas too is it just wasn't the Freemasons but like he wrapped in the Mormons into his uh, I I don't know how this all played out but for some reason the uh, the Mormons were really a, kind of a big part of his conspiracy you know to usher in the uh, satanic one world government government yeah yeah, yeah. The, the, you know uh, the 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 Mormons, or you know, the latter. There's there's more than one Mormon church, and in fact, Joseph Smith's family uh, founded a, a Mormon order after he died that is not connected to the one that was uh, 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 brought to Utah by Brigham Young, and it's still around. It's the second largest Mormon order. But I guess Joseph Smith kind of stepped in it because he actually there's actually some documents and some stuff he said where he's like, yeah, we're going to take over the country. Yeah. So he kind of he kind of let his personal cat out of the bag, but and I think a lot of people who want to find uh, a diabolism in the Latter Day Saints movement go back to that stuff and jump on it. Yeah. But it was part and parcel of a whole bunch of wacky stuff that was going on at that time. Like America in the 1830s and 40s, America, the United States, didn't know what it wanted to be. So you had some stuff like the Burr conspiracy. The one that I really want to someday do on your show is uh, uh, this organization called the Knights of the Golden Circle, okay. which which people know damn near nothing about. It's very hard to research. I've, I've been working on it for 20-something years wow. and maybe have 50 primary sources related to it, but it was a full-blown honest-to-God you know, conspiracy to overthrow the U.S. government and found a, a an Atlantic to Pacific Empire which took in uh, uh, Mexico and portions of South America as well as what my old professor Randolph Campbell called an empire for slavery. Theodosia Burr, uh, Aaron Burr's uh, daughter was involved in it. Harmon Blennerhassett, the guy who was part of the Burr conspiracy, was involved in it. And a lot of quite famous uh, people like William Barrett Travis and some of these folks that were involved in the Texas Revolution uh, had ties to the Knights of the Gold, the KOC. But we know almost nothing about it other than it existed, it had a lot of money, and it, and it had a lot of famous people who, who ex, ex, espoused these kind of jingoistic ideas. So Joseph Smith was a part of a, again, like the first century pre-Civil War Jacksonian America in, in which we didn't know what we wanted to be. We just knew we wanted to kick a lot of ass and uh, and steal a lot of real estate, and we hadn't quite figured out how we wanted to do it. Yet. Yeah. Well, I, I, it seems to be the um, like the. Uh, are you still there? Yeah. I'm okay. Here. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. It sort of seems to be the. Uh, it was the, the, the War of eighteen twelve. I think was kind of a bit of um, you, you know, because it, it 
at, at that point, the um, I believe in the United States, like like if you wanted to get like what you were making to another part of America, it was hugely expensive because there weren't things like roads and stuff. So yeah. most of American commerce is just shipping stuff to Europe. It was, it was cheaper to ship something to England than to like send something like three states. To so San away. Francisco, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, and so. But then War of eighteen twelve, you know, uh, you know there were all these uh, you know these blockades and stuff like that, and America kind of realized, okay, we got to start developing internal economies and building roads and eventually you know canals and and, and tracks and stuff like that and and like like it, the america kind of went from this more agrarian kind of culture to like this mercantile kind of kind of yeah, culture that's when it, that's when the urbanization of the united states yeah, uh, yeah. began you know I, I i i taught that class the age of jefferson and jackson where we talked about the 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 transition from uh, uh you know jefferson's agrarian america right, yeah. to an industrial America, and what the problem was is it created a colonial economy in the South, which still exists to this day, in which the capital to run the Southern economy came from places like Cleveland, Chicago, and New York. And uh, basically, Southern agriculturalists, the plantation owners, shot everything on spec. So they lived on, they lived on credit. They enjoyed their wealthy, you know, lifestyles uh, because of human chattel. You know, without the slave to perform the work wage-free, uh, that economy couldn't survive. So if that economy didn't grow and spread to Texas and then eventually they hoped California, Mexico, and even Brazil, uh, it, it was going to die. And that's what happened. You know, we eventually fought a war to, to, to end that economy. But you're absolutely right. The War of 1812, which... Uh, I've always referred to as the second American Revolution, proved to the American that we had to have an economy that didn't rely on uh, on our commercial ties to uh, to primarily England. Yeah, exactly, and yeah, yeah, and any of those kind of big. I mean, we we saw with you know, I mean, shift from being you know industrialized you know economies to information economies, service economies. I mean, those those come with you know like you know. Uh, you know, moral panics, and there, and uh, yeah, and I think it produced like what was it, the uh, second Great Awakening? Was that what second it? Great Awakening? Yeah, the exactly. Burn, burn over district. I yeah, think was where and, Mormonism uh, came the, out. The 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 Mormonism actually emerged in the Lehigh Valley, uh, not too far from uh, where I have a house in Pennsylvania, and and the the this is, but it's not just Mormonism. The whole spiritual movement. All that stuff, yeah. uh, Americans' version of theosophy, you know, table wrapping, Ouija boards, all that stuff comes out of northern Pennsylvania and central New York, uh, where there were so many circuit preachers going through that area preaching revivalism, tent meetings, spiritualisms. That's why it became known as the Bur Burned Over District, because they had preached so much fire <laughs> and brimstone, it had burned the whole place to the damn ground. And... Uh, a lot of these traditions, uh, especially things like uh, apostolic or charismatic Pentecostalism, uh, spread to the American South, and they stick. And, and they become the Bible movements that we know today. And, it, I mean, you probably have heard of, you know, Saddleback Ministry and all these churches. Mm -hmm, yeah. um, they come out of that exact tradition of, of charismatic evangelicalism and faith word and, and all that stuff. And a core to that are some of these weird ask conspiracies about you know how the world really works and it almost always comes back to Judaism, Freemasonry and authoritarian skepticism. Skip they both reject elites and and embrace authoritarianism. And it's a really weird uh, contradiction in the in the 
in the American uh, uh, psyche. I, I think uh, some podcast you had done. You know, once you sort of did the. Uh, the, the Shaver Mystery thing, and I was going to have you on. I kind of researched some of the other podcasts you you did, and I think you, you were. I think you did a podcast with it with a woman. She was an author. Yes, or something. Yeah, that's that's my friend Lisa Cantoral. She does a, a podcast called Get Lit Get Lit with Lisa, okay. and uh, she's a she and her husband are independent uh, publishers. In fact, I I performed a Gnostic wedding for them. Oh, very nice. <laughs> Let's talk about yeah. that uh, in New York City. Um, and and yeah, that's a good podcast to listen to, especially if you want to hear uh, from uh, diverse voices in 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 what's hot in literature yeah. right now. And well, on that you had really two good points. One was the um, you know I think like the, the nuns. You know, everyone started talking about the nuns, and and as I don't know if you're an atheist, but as in you know someone like me, who sort of I, I identify as an atheist, and you know keep it a beat on atheist thinking and atheist chatter you know we seem to try to lump in the nuns as you know one of us or fellow travelers and i just kind of shake my head and go no this is these are people ripe for kind of a a a next awakening you know yeah yeah like the nuns are just they, they still have these beliefs but they're just untethered and just looking for someone to you know whether it's the next scientology or the next mormonism or yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and, and you, you're saying you, you you're saying none here. Too. We we mean we mean N O N E, not N U N, because the yeah. N U Ns are still pretty heavily invested. Oh, in oh, yeah, the nuns. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I went I went to Catholic school. I have nothing but a great fondness for the nuns. The, uh, the, <laughs> the 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 lay Catholic teachers, like these are what we call the lay Catholics. They were the ones who uh, they took no religious orders, but they kind of were like celibate and. And they were—they were just the fucking creepiest people in the world. And, <laughs> but, but, but. I, I think I'll go a little further because since I've done that podcast, I've—I've—I've I've, I've got a chance to spend some time with some really interesting folks, who who we could call nuns. Um, I I I am I am an atheist in the in the sense that I don't believe in God, but I'm not that atheist who needs to tell you about it every 15 fucking minutes. So I I am a vegetarian and an atheist, but you and I could spend an afternoon and you would never learn those facts about it. So I am not that kind of, of atheist and vegetarian. (laughs) You made another good. I did not even own a copy of, of, of a single Richard Dawkins book. (laughs) Yeah. You made another good point too, where I thought where you're 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 like you know where um, it's like you know like like look you know like if you're kind of born and raised in sort of you know Alabama, and you know you're just you know fundamentalist Christianity, you know, and you're that's not working for you in terms of like exploring the mysteries of the universe, and then you now stumble on you know, Bigfoot or something yeah. else, you know, it's, it's like, it's like you, you, you had a very good tack. Like you, you, you cut them a lot of slack, you know, it's like, I'm not mad at those people. Yeah, and yeah. I, and I can explain why, because, you know, uh, uh, again, I, I, I've, I've had a chance to spend some time with some people who are very sincere pagans, uh, women, and I've had some, a chance to spend some time with some very sincere, uh, uh Bigfoot hunters, uh, and they're sincere in a way that, you know, like Matt Moneymaker and those guys aren't, in that they don't care if the goddess exists and they don't care if Bigfoot is real. For them, 
this is really a way to talk about, in the case of the Bigfooters, the land ethic and and uniquely American mythology that is not tethered to uh, sort of a Judeo-Christian, you know, capitalist mindset. You know, these folks really aren't bothered by the fact that skeptics are bothered by the existence of Bigfoot. They don't. They don't <laughs> care. They're not bothered by us. Um, they don't believe it's an animal in the woods, and in fact, they 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 equate it to a kind of, you know, my friend equates it to a kind of forest spirit along the same lines as Odin or or Pan. And my pagan friends, they have adopted witchcraft in the way that a lot of you know sort of Joe Rogan types have adopted adopted Satanism as a big fat middle finger to the patriarch. Like, <laughs> They don't care if manage if magic doesn't work. They like the fact that it triggers, you know, Christian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really it. You know, we're in trigger culture right now. We're in we're in that kind of a world, and they've adopted these things as psychological rebellion. And that's no different than you know, a religious person taking up a religious belief as a part of a. Uh, of, you know, I have a lot of friends. It's a Unitarian. One of my best friends is a is a Unitarian from the old days. And you know, I think a lot of his Unitarianism is a is a place marker for his his Marxism, his socialism, and his and his social justice ideas. The the whole idea of God is completely ancillary to that. So as an atheist, I can totally take God out of the equation and focus on these things as cultural phenomena. And right now, we are sort of in a second great awakening or a third great awakening, but that is completely disconnected from. This Jude, it's a it's a middle finger to this sort of Judeo Christian past. There are all these people out there who are exploring quote unquote pseudo scientific ideas as a way to break with uh, 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 essentially the old ideas of the patriarchy. I, I still don't think it's going to end well, though. For no, it's not going to end well. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. Uh, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, science is still my strong daddy. <laughs> I mean, that's that's where my that's my yeah. feet are firmly planted in 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 reason facts and data i am just incredibly intrigued by the fact that this is these are the things that we have decided to embrace as tools of social revolution freaking bigfoot like and it makes perfect sense he's a totally american character the wild man of the american woods he's 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 the 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 mascot for you know anti-corporatism, fighting global climate change, right. and all that stuff. This mysterious woodland creature that sort of is the, you know, the, 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 the mythological representation of the American forest. Right, yeah. I remember um, I, I used to live in Seattle, and then uh, during, during the whole dot-com boom, and then eventually got sort of laid off and had to sort of drive all the way back to... Uh, to uh, my hometown, Windsor, which is next to Detroit. So right. You can imagine driving from Seattle to Detroit. That's about three days on the road. Twelve. Hours. I had some really yeah. good pizza in Windsor, Canada, one time. Oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, well, let's get to that in a moment. Put a pin in that. But uh, yeah, and I remember you know sort of driving, and you know, of course, you'd stop at you know gas stations to get gas and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, the the number of like. 60-year-old men just going across America alone on a motorcycle was like, oh, you know, wow, there's a lot of these guys, you know, just, just doing that. And, you know, maybe that's sort of, again, that's the, you know, that's the spirit of Bigfoot right there, you know? The, yeah. Uh, oh, man. Uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, 
there's a guy in my office that does that every year. He gets away from his wife and kids, and he rides his motorcycle to Alaska and clears his head. Yeah. I, I don't like motorcycles, but I'm planning a trip like that myself next year while my wife's in grad school. I'm going to take two weeks and maybe take my little sports car and head out west and, and see some, <laughs> some paranormal sites that I've always wanted to see. And just oh, kind yeah, of That would be great, yeah. Experiencing them, them alone. I don't know what it is about middle-aged white men that we want to – you know, do stupid shit like that. But well, I know what it is. We all read Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, oh, Robert okay. Persing's book, and and so we all want to either be Dean Moriarty from On the Road or Persing from Zen. But you know, something you brought up earlier is this concept of you know the uh, the influence machine, and and Persing nailed that. It's interesting you brought that up. Nailed that dead to rights. He said. One of his famous quotes is, the only Zen you find at the top of mountains is the Zen you bring with you. <laughs> and that, that quote has always really, I mean, that's sort of the, the thesis statement of his book, is that ideas about God, culture, quality, values, and morals ultimately uh, sit with us. And, you know, it's hard for me to be angry at, you know, Women who are building communities of, of, of agency and authority around, you know, witchcraft, uh, when, you know, people have been doing that around, you know, Christianity for 2000 years. Like, it's like, it's like, okay, you know, I would prefer it if, if we all sat down and did calculus. But I'll take this. <laughs> you know? I, I have to correct you, though. I, I, I believe that guy stole that quote from uh, uh, Yoda in, in uh, Empire Strikes Back. You might well be right. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, yeah. what, what's in the tree? Only what you take with you. So, mm -hmm. so, so yeah, I, I, I think he stole that line from. Empire. I don't know if uh, if Persig predates Yoda or not, but I know that uh, George Lucas is a famous uh, white guy who likes to. <laughs> Who likes to embed mythology? But I'll take it. I mean, I, 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 I used to troll Amazon.com reviews. This is this is way way back when um, Amazon.com reviews had your actual email address in your review, and uh, I, I would I for any any version of the uh, the, the Jane Austen book, book Emma I, I found I would I would write a very simple I would give it one star, and I I, <laughs> I would complain like. Uh, I don't know who this Jane Austen character is, but she clearly uh, ripped off the plot of Clueless. And, uh, <laughs> and then I had my email, and I would get just the nastiest <laughs> emails from women who would just be like, "You fucking asshole, dirtbag of a man!" You know, Clueless is written in eight, or uh, you know, Emma is written in eighteen fifteen. It kind of predates <laughs> Clueless, and I would just respond with one word, or sorry, two words: prove it. And, uh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, and then the, you know, then the email I would get back from them would just be again, you know, scathing as well, and just like, <laughs> okay, clearly these women have dated or married men exactly like this, and right, and, uh, and, and I, would, I would just troll these poor women. I'd just be like, well, look, it, I, I, I bought this, you know. Emma book new. It is not a 200 year old <laughs> book. So maybe you should just check your facts, you know, and long story short, it would, it would just go back and forth like that. And eventually I would sort of pretend like, okay, look, here's the deal. You know, my, my girlfriend at the time, you know, she noticed I didn't read and she was always bothering me. And I finally read this book and I didn't understand it. And she got really mad at me and she broke up with me. And I'm really upset at this Jane Austen for ruining my relationship. 
That's a that is a character that exists on HAN at this very moment. I mean, I know. I, yeah. I could, who I could have started QAnon in Amazon reviews. What was it? In, in Amazon reviews. Yeah, yeah I know. I, I uh, some years ago, I think it must have been ten or twelve years ago. I, I wrote a short story I didn't do anything with that was set in a sort of comedy version of the U.S. after uh, uh, global warming, and right. the capital had been moved to uh, St. Louis. Uh, St. Louis, uh, D.C. And in it, St. we Louis, had D.C. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> and uh, uh, in it, we had changed the calendar from A.D. and B.C. to uh, 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 A.S.W. and uh, B.S.W. Uh, and reset it to 1977 because, of course, that's after Star Wars. Oh, yeah. Wars, okay. With the argument that you know Star Wars had served as the basis for the the moral universe of of the generation that ultimately moved the capital, yeah. and that's exactly true. Like, you know, there's some polling that indicates that the the mid 70s is when you know people in at least the United States and certainly in much of Europe began to fundamentally walk back uh, a lot of these traditional. Uh, ideas that had been bedrock concepts in, in in Western culture. I don't. I secretly want to give Star Wars the credit for that mm-hmm. because yeah. you know I saw that movie when I was three or four years old, and it was about a, an idiot kid from the desert. I was an idiot kid from the desert who saves the galaxy, you know, and to me that meant a, a lot more than anything that was going on in Bible school. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so, you know, for a lot of us, that's where we really went to church was in, you know, watching movies like that. And it was so much more appealing to believe that we had, you know, a role to play in personal agency and that kind of stuff versus, uh, you know, sit down, shut up, you know, eat your porridge and, you know, give me 20% of your income. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Which maybe uh, wrap up, but I, I sure, I, I should have probably totally got like, you know, your, your kind of your background economic okay. qualification stuff at the, at the top. So people don't spend, you know, an hour and a half like, okay, I know he kind of works for the government and he yeah, did you can something. Yeah, me all day yeah. long and you'll just find my dad. So, yeah, you yeah. know, but uh, you, you actually have a, you, you have a, you have, you know, a BA, an MA, and I, a PhD, I, I have, this very interrelated but wide ranging. That- I am the uh, I majored in minors. I have the I'm the king of uh, the liberal arts uh, because I too uh, wanted to be a Victorian scientist and a a a, uh, a professor challenger kind of person. And I was in school for about twenty years off and on. I've got a bachelor's degree in anthropology. Uh, I have a minor in philosophy, but I had enough credit hours as an undergrad to pick up degrees that I've chosen in uh, philosophy, uh, anthropology, and uh, and uh, history. And I have a master's degree in history, and I have a PhD in a field of adult education. Uh, and I centered my uh, dissertation work on uh, the cognitive process processes by which we learn information in the public space. Mm-hmm. So what I was curious most about was uh, uh, why uh, cognitive dissonance exists uh, between uh, the things that we are taught by uh, authoritarian uh, uh, institutions like monuments and museums. You know, it's mm-hmm. like why why can you? I, my case study was the Lincoln Memorial. I was like, why can you go to the Lincoln Memorial and be told that Lincoln was an abolitionist? 
and still walk out of that damn museum believing that he was a friend of uh, slavery. And so that was something that I wanted to explore is why we couldn't teach people in the public space uh, uh, reality. And that grew out of having served on the board of directors for a museum in Texas for a couple of years, which was one of the most frustrating exercises mm. of my entire life. But I, uh, I, I consider myself an information scientist because information science didn't exist in the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s, and that was uh, sort of where uh, my career took a, a turn, is trying to take all these big piles of information that historians and archivists are, are in charge of and try to make sense out of it. So uh, big data analytics, uh, you know, cross-working uh, big piles of information and that kind of stuff is is what I've been primarily interested in for the past decade. Uh, and in my part-time, you know, I investigate in my spare time uh, uh, claims of the paranormal. So if you want me to investigate your case, as I told Blake, uh, shoot me an email to drake.investigates at gmail.com, and I'll take a look at it. I'm not going to make a TV show. I don't have a podcast. Because of my job, I can't publish books and articles, so uh, I will investigate your case. I'll give you my answer, and I will never try to monetize it. So <laughs> I, I, I take a look at things that I find interesting and unique, and uh, and uh, and that's sort of uh, what, what I do for fun, much to the chagrin of my long-suffering spouse. Oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> Our spouses are, are suffering, don't they? Yes. <laughs> I always say the, the, uh, the stuff they put up with, it's... Uh, uh, it, you know, God bless them, kind of thing. Yeah, she likes to travel. We're, uh, we're, uh, we every year I drag her. We got married on Halloween, and every year I oh, okay. drag her to some haunted location or monstrous location. Last year we spent our anniversary freezing our cheeks off in uh, an, an ex insane asylum in eastern Pennsylvania, uh, <laughs> and it's kind of funny because this year we're gonna go. We're gonna take a cruise to Bermuda. And she's like, oh, we're going to Bermuda. That's I don't know if she said it or one of my coworkers said it. You're going to Bermuda. There's nothing paranormal in I was about that. And I was like, Bermuda Triangle, <laughs> yeah, baby. <exactly. laughs> 20 years, we got to go to one of the biggies. Yeah. It's like the, getting your wife the bowling ball for her birthday. Well, <laughs> right. you're not going to use it. I mean, right. like, yeah. oh, I'll use it myself. Here's a, I got you a fifth of whiskey and a, and a pair of size 13 shoes. <laughs> Okay, and uh, are, are any upcoming appearances on Monster Talk? Uh, I do not know. I'm hoping Blake is kind of sick of us for a while. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I would go on that show uh, more than he does, but uh, I do not have anything like that planned. Uh, I, 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 sh I showed up on a, on a podcast to talk about some mystery lights. I've got a couple of things cooking, uh, but uh, I probably will not be on Monster Talk until – Sometime next year when I'm going to force Blake to uh, – uh, and he doesn't know this yet, so if he's okay. listening, right. Blake, you're going to do this uh, to uh, 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 report on my live reports from my Mystery Light sites out in the, yeah. out in the okay. Midwest. Right. Yeah, yeah uh, Blake has come out with this new horror pod. Yes. Yeah, I was on the premiere episode. We did uh, – there, there's a 70s sort of – you know, like in the 80s or these direct-to-VHS movies. Back in the 70s, they were basically movies direct-to-drive. They were sort of made for the drive in these movies. And it was a horror movie called, like, Seven S's. about kind of a man who's turned into a snake. Snake, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Blake and I kind of talk about that. And we actually recorded it. I got married November 11th, 
2017. And in the podcast, I'm talking about, oh, I'm getting married soon. So we actually recorded this. So you recorded this. What's that? You recorded it some years ago. Yes, it's it's been it's been sitting on Blake's hard drive for uh, for quite some time. So and uh, and when he finally sort of posted it up, I, I, I'm like, oh, I, my! I had this vague memory of it, got, uh, thinking, boy, that was the worst piece of shit anyone has ever done. But then I listened to it, and I'm like, oh, that actually wasn't all that bad. So uh, I know again, Blake doesn't know this. So Blake, if you're listening, I'm going to hit you up about Legend of Bloggy Creek because I am. From North Texas, ah, and okay. it was the first case I actually investigated, and I investigated it in the 90s oh, uh, when God. some of the people were still around. So uh, got to talk Legend of Boggy Creek, baby, because that is that is that is one of the first ones I ever did on, on my own. In fact, when I got my first car, that was the first place I took it, <laughs> was to find those uh, those old sites. I went through McDonald's drive-thru, but, you know... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, wow. no, I meant to do Legend of Boggy Creek. Yeah. All, all, all that said, I, I know Blake is kind of he's sort of taken his Monster Talk podcast because he used to be part of Skeptic Magazine, and now he's sort of Monster House LLC, and he, he's <laughs> trying to he's trying to monetize it in you know ways that he's m- m- entirely welcome to. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, uh, and I, I think he kind of wants these ideas. He wants to sort of start to build out a stable of podcasts. So I did. Offer him like you know I'm I'm happy to move conspiracy skeptic to uh, that's to, great uh, monster house but uh, unfortunately I'll have to get you know I, I use highly copyrighted intro music and outro <laughs> music and so I'm like I can't probably take my library over because you know you know it's you know I've just used it under the the doctrine of well go ahead and sue me kind of you know, sue me. like you know, I'm just some fucking Canadian you know what are you going to go after me for you know go ahead B fifty two like but, uh, <laughs> but you know I mean I, I, I obviously you know suddenly if it's a you know a major media podcasting house but uh, so I would have to change some of that stuff around couldn't take the my old library but uh, you know I I may move it to that but um, I'm, to- I'm totally excited by that like I, I i have a buddy i'll pitch his podcast it's not a skeptical podcast it's uh it's called strange familiars and the guy who does it is named tim renner and he is a bigfoot believer and if you are into folklore folk magic and you you he's not heavy on the woo and, and you he also has a band so if you are into uh, that kind of stuff a man with an ASMR kind of voice right. and and sort of East Coast uh, folk tales told in the kind of podcast that'll put you right to sleep. I, I highly recommend it. And I mean, he has a much smaller listener base, and I think he's successfully managed to, to monetize it. So I think he is doing this at the right right time. I know it's weird talking about another podcast on a podcast, yeah, but the yeah, cross pollination uh, pollination. Is is very exciting. Like, if it, I'll be honest, if it wasn't for my job, I would do my own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I guess the, the the thrust of that is that while I am currently the podcast that doesn't want anything, you know, I don't I don't ask for money or you know support my sponsors, which I have none, or go I don't beg for iTunes reviews or anything sure. like that. Um, it, it, obviously, if I move my podcast over to Blake's thing, I I, I mean I want. Blake to be as financially successful as possible because sure. he is American and um, I guess you know healthcare is not a 
it's birth not right great. there. So, yeah. so depending on what job you have, so so I would like Blake and his family to be as successful as possible. So if, if I can contribute five dollars a month to that with my podcast sure. that's great but uh so yeah so just warning in the future i may stop being the podcast that doesn't want anything i i'm the podcast <laughs> that wants something for blake smith you know but um, yeah that'd be a sign yeah all, all that said as why well, still am the podcast that doesn't want anything I, I i do want always want something for my guests and that is uh if someone does see you at some sort of event or uh and and they recognize you from uh conspiracy skeptic uh and they say hey jerry you were awesome you know so entertaining can i buy you a drink uh what uh, what what can a, what can a person buy you a, a beer, uh, certainly a beer, but not, not an an India Pale Ale. Okay. I, I, I will take anything, a Pabst Blue Ribbon, a Summer Shandy, uh, a, a warm Coors Light from the back of your car, but not an India Pale Ale. All right. I do not like I, 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 IPA. You're talking IPA. Not an IPA guy. Not a fan. All right. I, so. I, I encountered IPAs really first time when I, I took my, well, she was my girlfriend then, my wife now, took her to, we went to uh, uh, Pittsburgh. It was part of my whole romance. It's a great beer town. Yo, yeah. fucking A. It's amazing. <laughs> but it was like, I had this whole like romantic Rust Belt tour of America thing for her. And so Pittsburgh was Detroit, Pittsburgh, Philly. <laughs> Uh, we never made it to Cleveland, but uh, but that was kind of the, the whole the whole idea. I wanted to get her up to uh, you know to uh, 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 you know Sheboygan places like that. But um, but yeah, so uh, so uh, yeah yeah. I I mean IP was kind of novel back then, but yeah, it's 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 kind of run its. Uh, yeah, take your take your gal to the romantic. <laughs> Baby, we're going to Cleveland. <laughs> exactly. I know, honey. I know. Yeah. The, the place where India Pale Ale is good is actually in the United Kingdom. Okay. If you are sitting in the World's End pub in Edinburgh, Scotland, and you order a Dukers, that is a good beer. The version of those beers we make in the United States are so incredibly salty and bitter that it ruins your day it ruins your breakfast <laughs> it ruins stuff you eat three weeks later like i i don't want an electric shock to my tongue i i want to enjoy my beer so i'm enjoying tonight a uh, warsteiner uh, uh german pilsner which was actually quite good so that's that's more my plan so if you if you hate what i've had uh, to say here tonight, you'll walk up and throw a hop demon in my face. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll buy me a nice, a nice real ale. All right, yeah, there's the. Um, I mean, I, I'm not a fan of like you know, you know, Labatt's and Molson's and all that sort of stuff. But there, there was a uh, uh, Honkers Honkers ale. I don't know. If Honkers Goose, is Goose good. Goose Island, yeah. Goose Island Honkers yeah. is very good. I, yeah. I, we, I don't know if they discontinue it, but whatever we, I just cannot. Mm, it's a seasonal. It, it, they do it occasionally. <laughs> this okay. is now a, a, a beer podcast. Th- that's they important. do it occasionally. This is, impo- it this is important up, talk. Yeah, Trust it me. shows up about every eighteen months. Goose Island mm-hmm. is famous for doing uh, these sort of season uh, mm-hmm. seasonal beers, and uh, there has been a hops crisis in American brewing. So a lot of the the seasonals that uh, require very special hop uh, bills. 
are, uh, are have not been available lately. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, with everybody making the IPAs, sort of the Idaho Idaho produces more hops and than any other place. Western Washington, uh, the price of hops has gone through the roof, so it's getting hard to make some of these these beers. Um, but I like Belgian beer. That's what my wife and I are most passionate about, which is, uh, uh, you know, they say that the Germans brew the most perfect beer in the world and the Belgians brew the most interesting beers. And <laughs> I certainly think that's true. Wow. All right, then. Okay. Well, I will I will let you go. And, it's uh, been a pleasure. All right. Yeah, good. All right. And ha- have, have a good night, Jerry. And uh, when you're ready to come back on, was, what was it? The Golden Axe? The Knights of the Golden uh, Circle. Knights of the Golden Circle. I, I okay. Golden Axe believe. was an old arcade game. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. No, Golden Knights was great. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely have you back on, on, on for that. That sounds great. We'll talk about it. Oh, thank you. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Take care, sir. <laughs> uh, okay, have a good night, Jerry. Bye-bye. Loving you isn't the right thing to do. 